You're in the chat here. Um, so we have a whole host of witnesses um, lined up for tomorrow. So it's going to be a, a crazy day tomorrow. Um, finding my list of names here. Um, I know we have Mark Elias, which is going to be huge. We have Debbie Fine, who is the Clinton campaign lawyer. Uh, nobody's quite sure what she's going to testify to, but that's an interesting name to have in there. Laura Sego, Fusion GPS individual who has been immunized, is going to be huge. She's scheduled to testify tomorrow. And there's a few people, a few other people as well. So tomorrow's going to be a huge day. I expect tomorrow to have more fireworks than today did. And, and I thought today was a pretty solid day. I mean, obviously... We're waiting on the full transcript today, but I feel pretty confident between uh, the three people that were live tweeting this that we, we probably have a pretty good picture of, of the, the scene today. So, um, Hans, I don't know if you want to jump in with any thoughts that you had today or um, anything that surprised you or anything that you, you had thoughts about. Um, or if you're not quite ready, I can riff for a little bit more here. I'm trying to add you as speaker. All right, I'll keep going. Hans, go ahead and jump in whenever you're ready. Sure, oh, I see you. Just I'm accept here. to speak. I'm here. Yeah. Hey, Hans. It was. Uh, I completely agree. It was a very interesting uh, day, and it was very unexpected in many ways uh, for the reasons you say. It kind of started off with the triple L: uh, the look, the leap, the lie, which is a kind of a nice uh, persuasion tool that. Um, Deborah Shaw used at the or Britain Shaw, I think she goes by, used in the beginning there. Um, it's just something to capture the jurors like, um, hey, this is what we're going to do. And the, uh, there was some inconsistencies in what the look meant. Um, the leap was trying. So the look was either something to do with steel or just kind of Joffe collecting the data, looking at the data, I guess, looking at you know, the situation. The leap was pushing the stuff into the New York Times and other media. And when that didn't go well, when it didn't happen, the lie happened. So the third L, and that was pushing the, uh, the fake Alpha Bank data into the FBI um, by Sussman. So he kind of had to step in. So I thought that was really interesting. And that was right off the bat. It was in the first few minutes. I was like, whoa, we're off to some, some great fireworks here. Especially because I think we talked about this on a, on a previous uh, a show or a previous time we, we all met here. Um, certainly did on Twitter. This, um, the, the idea of, of Steele somehow having, you know, perhaps being part of that look, um, whether or not he was, uh, I guess you all recall on July 29th, uh, 2016, Sussman and Steele actually met. And Sussman later said he was sent to vet Steele. It was never clear what, 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 what's he going to vet him for. By that time, you know, Steele had written a bunch of reports. He'd been hired, paid, everything. It was like in full motion uh, for about two months by that point. So what's he vetting him for? And then the sort of one idea I guess we had was he was vetting him as the guy who's going to take this alpha bullshit into the FBI. And my theory on that is that he met Steele and said, nah, this, this guy's not serious. We can't use him. And then poor Sussman <laughs> had to do it himself. So what she said, the triple L's might be a play on that. We're not sure, but that's kind of what she promised the jury. So I thought that was uh, very, very uh, fascinating. The other thing that really stood out to me, I mean, you, you already mentioned a bunch of things we kind of found out about Joffe and the, being a confidential informant and all that. Um, in terms of bigger picture, the thing that jumped out at me was, again, uh, Britton Shaw called the whole 
you know, the, the framing of the whole thing was our FBI. That, that kind of just, just jumped out. So clearly, Team Durham has decided that they're going to paint the FBI kind of as the victims, you know, who were duped, that sort of thing. Our FBI, how sad, you know, this shouldn't happen. And I think he basically said that, um, you know, our FBI is duped. Doesn't matter if it's Democrats or Republicans. We should all be against that, that sort of thing. So I think they were basically forced to do that because they've got 12 jurors, you know, out of D.C. And uh, as we found out yesterday, a lot of them are Hillary fans and the judge kept them on. So you, you kind of got to accommodate. And the best way to do that is to, to sort of take the politics out of it and make it all about the institutions and how wonderful and important all those things are. Hence, you know, we got the our FBI. But the long term effect, I fear, may be that once he's done that now, now Durham is sort of frame the FBI as the victim. You can only really do that once. The, you know, the die is cast. You can't, you can't go back on that. But if he's going to try and indict some FBI people a few months down the road, they're going to say, they're going to mine the transcripts from today. And they say, no, no, no. The FBI is the victim. You can't, like, indict us now. Now, obviously, you know, a lot can happen between now and then and so on. But it just kind of takes me back to another theme that we've been talking about for months, right? that Durham's going after the private people, not the public people. And I think the kind of our FBI kind of reinforces that. So those are kind of my, my first thoughts. Yeah, that's really interesting, Hans. I, I think that's spot on. Um, I guess if we were going to flesh that a little bit, and I try to find the silver lining um, to kind of keep the hopes alive, and maybe it's just hoping at this point. But, you know, there are a couple threads that I thought were really interesting in that Baker does not come off looking good. And I think it was Hellman that was on the stand. And, and I hope we get the transcript soon because I think it was Hellman that was like, I really want to know who the source of this is. Or um, I think even from an evidentiary documentation standpoint, he was asking Baker, what's the source of this information? And Baker was apparently really closely guarded with that. He didn't want to share. And I think he described it as a sensitive source, which raises all kinds of red flags, right? Because even if in uh, Baker's mind, Sussman's the sensitive source, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but even if he had like the inclination that this is from DNC, which I think, you know, we can probably assume that he had to have a thought of that. I mean, that raises all kinds of alarm bells, right? Because if Baker knows, and that goes to the heart of materiality of the false statement, but... Like, that's the bigger case to me. So let's say, you know, Durham can't get an indictment on Sussman because the statements were immaterial. That's not the end of the road if uh, this kind of leads to somewhere where somebody in the FBI knew what Sussman was doing and they went, you know, trudging ahead anyway. And I, I thought that was pretty unusual. Um, Tom Grasso. So we, we got the name of the FBI handler for Rodney Joffe, and it's Tom Grasso. And we had known that name for a number of months now because he's a, uh, he appears pretty frequently in our FOIA documents. And obviously these FOIA documents are just to our Georgia Tech researchers. We don't have the direct line of sight between Grasso and Joffe, but Grasso appears pretty, pretty frequently in the FOIA documents for Georgia Tech. So you have to assume, I mean, if they if they wanted to grab an FBI person and say, Hey, you know, we found something really unusual. We're not really sure what to make of it. They have a personal relationship there. They could just call them up and say, Hey, 
Mr. Tom Grasso, you know, I don't know what I'm looking at. You know, I'm a little bit unsure myself, I guess. Um, but I think somebody's got to take a look at this. You know, that's a really easy conversation to, to envision for somebody like Rodney Joffe, who has contacts throughout Washington, not just the FBI, not just in Congress, but really multiple agencies. Um, he's really well known. So the idea that Rodney Joffe would have to hide behind Michael Sussman and send him in there with these claims, it just doesn't meet the, the smell test, right? And Rodney Joffe's a confidential human source. And it's, you know, MB, I think throughout, you know, the seminal point of that, it's confidential. You know, you don't have to, you don't even have to be right as a confidential human source. You know, he has the direct line of communication with the FBI. You know, it's confidential. It's right in the name. And he can say, you know, hey, I was scrubbing internet data or, or whatever excuse he wants to come up with and say, I stumbled across this. But that's not what he did. And that, that goes to uh, kind of his, his state of mind. And I, I expect at this point that we will see an indictment of Rodney Joffe. And that trial is going to be amazing. I, I think that'll be incredibly informative. And I, you know, I, I guess I sort of appreciate the way that John Durham is handling this prosecution. And maybe it's just, you know, standard procedure. Um, but I like that he used speaking indictments. And I like his presentation just on day one to, you know, frame up the picture and, and throw in some of these, these other facts. Um, one of the biggest controversies kind of head into this was, oh, John Durham's not going to be able to put in the evidence that this data was suspect. Well, he did it today through witnesses. And these witnesses that he called said, yeah, I debunked this in less than a day. Like this, you know, this was garbage. Uh, I spent less than a day on this and I knew, you know, something was right. I don't even know what the terminology used was, but um, that's incredibly damning because now, now it's in the jury's mind. Okay, well, this you know, there's more to this story. This is a political trick. Um, you know, there's something wrong here. So I thought that was really important as well. So I don't know, Hans, if you have anything to follow up on that. Otherwise, uh, I'm going to get King in here too. Sure. The, um, I think the sensitive source thing is, a, is a, there's so much to discuss. I mean, let's start with that one. It's such an interesting um, observation, you know, that, that you had and, and that, that happened there. So you have the witness saying that, Baker didn't want to tell him who it was. And I agree with you. The interpretation that it was Sussman that he's talking about is really the only one that works here. So why would Baker hide the name Sussman from this FBI, whatever he was, analyst or whatever? And it kind of all comes back to our overarching theory, which is that they all kind of knew what game was being played. And there's no way that Baker didn't know that Sussman was DNC and connected with that whole side of things. Uh, the extent to which he was connected to Clinton, he may not have known, but he certainly would have known the direction of, of things. I mean, these guys were friends. So the text message that Sussman sent Baker the night before he arrived there, like, hey, I'm just, I'm just a guy. I'm not there for my client or any client or whatever. That was just so that it's like a, a wink, wink kind of thing. Just so we're all on the same page. It's like the FBI, especially Baker, needed that in order to take it further. And Baker wanted to take it further because, you know, He's, he's Hillary friendly. He's one of them. You know, he wants to get Hillary elected. He hates Trump. You know, all the usual stuff, uh, which he put on display after the election uh, when, you know, he went to Brookings and whatever, you know, he was talking about uh, in, in those interviews uh, that he did with them. So you, I think you're absolutely right. Um, Baker 
knew that there was something up, but he was like, I just don't tell me, you just can't tell me, <laughs> just tell me the opposite. Otherwise I can't do anything with it. It was one of those situations. And so because Baker knew that he didn't want to give up the name Sussman because he knew as soon as he mentioned Sussman, the, the analyst is going to go, Hey Sussman, isn't that the DNC guy? And then the whole kind of thing collapses. So that just re kind of reinforces our entire theory on that. And yeah, I completely agree with you. That's very, very bad on Baker. But the point is, even if Baker was in on it, Sussman still lied. So to, to kind of keep up the charade and Baker can always pretend, well, I didn't know because he never told me anything. And officially, I guess he didn't tell him anything. So, um, you know, very, very interesting day. Uh, what, what other thing did you uh, mention? I mean, there were so many things happening. Um, so we got Joffe's handler. We kind of uh, talked about him. Uh, well, the I guess we haven't talked about the fact that he left the FBI in 2018 and went over to some computer company. And that computer company is now hosting uh, talks by Andrew McCabe. So you got the, the whole DC kind of circle thing going on there. Um, yeah, it's just been an amazing day. So much to come out. And as you said, tomorrow is going to be kind of even better because you got Sago, who's huge. You got uh, Elias. I mean, it's been pretty explosive in terms of your last point you know what um durham's up to and and how it all fits i, I agree i mean i've been pretty impressed with the first day it was they prepared well they they did really well from from you know we, we only saw it through all the tweets through these three accounts that you talked about but i think they did very well the only bad thing which i already mentioned is that they kind of foreclosed any opportunity that they can go after uh, the fbi because they've painted the fbi as the victims here and i guess that's just but that's always been the case, that he's always known uh, I'm going after these private people. That's uh, kind of as far as I'm allowed to go or as far as, you know, the establishment allows or the, the it's just, you know, he's kind of a one man army and he probably knows this. There's only so far he can go. Maybe someone else can clean up, you know, 47 or, you know, whatever can come in one day and clean up. But at this stage is probably the best he can hope for. And I agree with you on the basis of today among the private actors, Joffe looks like he's in trouble. A big big trouble and of course he is private so he wouldn't fall in you know he would fall on the private side of that divide so uh durham can certainly go after him yeah spot on uh hey cody i i added you a speaker i don't know if you have any thoughts that i'm still trying to review my notes and kind of all the tweets today so cody if you want to jump in with any thoughts you had i'll uh, unfortunately my side. internet's been down all day so i've only got 5g connection on my cell phone as <laughs> uh, i miss i missed my internet connection for my laptop <laughs> oh it's just been rough um the thing did anybody know about the fbi investigation being transferred to chicago i think october 2016 was it anybody have any details i I guess I don't. I, I thought that was kind of interesting, right? Because um, for those that kind of missed it, um, I think they were asking Hellman, at least on cross-examination, um, about the investigation or, or how it would be started. And Hellman was like, well, no, we didn't open an investigation over here, uh, but the Chicago office opened a full investigation. So um, that is sort of interesting. I, I don't have a date on that, though. and I, I don't know why that would be. Um I, I kind of mentioned it because I've been waiting. I've been waiting for Chicago to come up for a long time. It's just been a black hole because uh, again, it's going to uh, the emails that John Solomon revealed. I think in 2020, uh, 
the dragon emails, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, October 2016, early 2016, saying we need to get the hurry the F up to get this dragon fights thing going on. I think it was October 20th. And so it's like, well, how did that happen? How did and so uh, another little thing is there is an email ex- or text exchange between Papadopoulos and Million, where they're talking about having met up. I think it was evening of October 14th, October 14th, 2016 at Trump International Hotel in Chicago. And it's like, OK, well, this the, the, the two are connected. I think I know how I just. I just need an internet connection is all I'm saying. I think there's something there. I think we're headed in that direction. Um, Crossheart Dragon, that's Papadopoulos, isn't it? Well, Million has hinted that there's three heads to the dragon, you know, quote dragon. Um, I don't know who it is. He hasn't specified. Um, uh, Sergey does speak fluent Chinese and so I uh, I don't know if that has anything to do with how they came to that investigation it's it, it's just kind of a black hole it's something I haven't been able to pierce well I, I think you we might be conflating two two separate issues so um, oh yeah they are two separate issues I'm yeah. just wondering where they if and when they converge see and I I wouldn't expect them to um I don't know that Chicago's uh, the FBI office there is all that well known for cyber issues, but um, yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't necessarily connect it to Papadopoulos and or Million though. Uh, the um, timing, I mean, they went they met up at a Trump hotel. Like, come on, well, like... there's a lot of timing. I mean, that, that's going to be one of the challenges that we face as we get more information is is going to be ruling out events because there's. There's so much happening at once, and and just based on the dates and even locations, sometimes it's really easy to start grouping ev- events together and trying to connect them. And that it's just, I'm not discounting it. I'm not saying it's not true, but um, you know, it's going to be a challenge to to make sure that we don't connect things that aren't aren't necessarily connected. If that makes sense. Actually, I need to cover my uh, tokus real quick. I think it was uh, I think in Papadopoulos. George's book, he said that he and Million met in October 2016, but I think actually he was off by a month. I think it was November. T- I can't remember. It was one of those two months. There was a mix up somewhere. Yeah. So on the uh, couple of things there, um, Dragon was Carter Page, Fury was Manafort, Razor was Flynn, uh, and Typhoon was Papadopoulos. Um, I don't think uh, the Chicago thing has anything to do with Papadopoulos nor with Million. Um, there's, an, there's a 302 amongst the, Mel, the Mueller 302s, October 4th, 2016. And this seems to be a direct result of what they talked about today in court. And the, um, they interviewed a woman with a four-letter surname. And so obviously we're thinking that's uh, Ms. Camp. Um, so she kind of came up with the same bullshit story as uh, April Lorenzen came up and Joffe came up with. So it's kind of maybe they were just trying the same trick through a different route, you know, uh, recycling the same story and get Chicago on it. Um, it would be interesting to I don't know more than that. I mean, and even that's speculation, because all I know is that the, the 302 that came out of that is a four letter woman. Um, so who knows? But uh, that's probably what it is. And we don't know how exactly it ended up there, because as the guy said today, 
uh, Hellman, the thing was done. It was a 5150. <laughs> it's over with. So why the hell are they sending it to Chicago like a few days later? Um, and I can only imagine is because that Elgin camp kind of somehow reignited the whole thing, either directly or someone pointed to her or, you know, whatever. We're still going to have to find out uh, exactly what happened there. You know, you know, there's one funny little thing that stands out in that October 4, uh, 302 of that might be Elgin camp is at the bottom of page one. Um, she mentions that she knew Walid Ferris, which is kind of a, a funny name. And there's, I, I think there's a bit of a black hole as far as information f about what Walid was up to during 20s. His name doesn't get mentioned a lot. And I, I think there is still an investigation going on with him, not as a subject, but I don't know. There's something going on with Walid and Egypt and yeah. I haven't been able my, to pierce that either. My recollection was it, it was something related to Egypt. It was more like a FARA investigation, which they, you know, aggressively used as a predicate. Um, they opened it all as FARA stuff and then said, well, it's, you know, really about Russia collusion and stuff. So, um, yeah, I, uh, yeah wind, I, I'll have to take is, a look at that. Uh, FARA's is wind, cross crossfire wind. Wind. Yeah, there was a there was a I forget who it was, uh, Washington Post or New York Times last year. They came out with a story about the, how there was an investigation into Egypt and there was a bank somewhere in Egypt that the FBI had a confidential informant that they didn't know if there they couldn't produce like a transaction, like a wire transfer, like allegedly going to the Trump campaign from some foreign source. Um and I, I believe Walid is connected to that somehow. It's just it's just something I'm waiting for it to come up one day. And I, I just got a message from Susan who said um, that in trial today they, they might have said that um, it was a counterintelligence investigation that was open in, in Chicago, not necessarily it might not necessarily have been within the cyber unit. So uh, maybe I was a little bit off base in my earlier comment. Hey, King, how's it going? Hey, I was going to say that very thing. I think uh, the counter, when, when he said Chicago, he also said counterintelligence. And I think he was referring to some counterintelligence investigation pre existing out of Chicago. Uh, didn't they have a Russian investigation there and a. Um, that led to a prosecution, actually. Uh, I don't recall oh. offhand. I'm thinking of, uh, I forget the guy's name. Um, Is it a Russian oligarch you're thinking of? Yes. Is it Furtash? Yes. Okay. I believe that's Chicago. I would not be surprised if the Chicago field office was heavily engaged in a Russian counterintelligence investigation at that time. Um, now, it could be it went two ways, both to Chicago and to uh, Strzok and his uh, crossfire hurricane investigation. So you all have to read, read, it's either footnotes 461 or, or 223, um, but they, they note a supervisory special agent for the FBI that obtained 
information from former CHS that was in a different field office. And by that, I assume it means other than Washington. And um, I guess I assumed that was New York, but um, maybe it is, maybe it's Chicago. Maybe I have to reevaluate my thinking on that. Um, but kind of backing up, King, I mean, I don't know if you want to uh, offer any comments that you had. It's about the trial in, in general. Um, be really interested uh, to hear. Oh, I, I'd be happy to. It, it's, I preface this, you know, it, it's not my policy to be a armchair quarterback on how good trial lawyers try a case. Everybody does it a little bit differently. You can, there are a multitude of uh, strategies or, or tactical decisions you can make along the way, who to call, when to call them, how far to go with each witness. Uh, from what I read in online today, it sounded like uh, the Durham team is doing a really good job. Uh, the you can see where the defense is headed. Uh, they're 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 going to hang their hat on uh, 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 you know reasonable doubt on every issue in the case because uh, they're throwing everything up against the wall they can think of. They don't have a a coherent, you know, one horse to ride. They're trying everything at the same time. They 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 say that oh gee, the FBI knew who the client was because here's here's circumstantial evidence that they knew that Sussman, Sussman was the source and Sussman represented DNC. We heard that today. Uh, we also heard that it didn't matter that uh, this was going to be investigated this way, no matter what. Uh, so they're they're trying everything, and it's not so far. It's not that terribly coherent yet, but it's it's early, so you can't tell. King, I, I kind of had the same thought about the lack of a coherent defense strategy. It, it, that really struck me, even reading it in text message or, or tweet format um, from people live tweeting it. It really seemed like they were throwing out everything, and they weren't sticking to what I think the central issue is on materiality. I, th I was really shocked that the defense actually opened up and they said uh, Sussman didn't lie. Because that's really not an issue at all. Sussman definitely lied. You know, the, the real meat and potatoes of the whole trial is on the issue of materiality. And then to, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, but as a trial lawyer, when you want to offer something like that up and you say, well, Sussman didn't lie. And you think that's like a really easy statement and you know, you're, you're advocating for your client, but is that going to come back and bite them when they say, well, clearly he lied, right? Because you offered up just that small tidbit, which is easily disproven. Like it's, there's really going to be no question about it. He's definitely lied. Um, but because they offered that up, is that a mistake by the defense um, in their strategy? 
uh, in my view it is. Um, we got Bosworth is quoted as saying, uh, this was a John Hoy uh, tweet this morning. Uh, Bosworth said that essentially he's going to discuss four things with the jury. And I guess he meant as part of that, that's sort of the overarching trial strategy. This is what we're going to show you. Um, what did Sussman actually tell the FBI? Is what he told the FBI false? Did he intend to say something false? Did it matter? So I completely agree with King. It's kind of a throw the kitchen sink, muddy the waters, whatever you want to call it. It's not coherent at all. And I agree with you. I mean, it comes down to the last one. Did it matter? That, that's what they're really going to end up arguing. But in the meantime, they're going to argue it didn't matter. But uh, in the meantime, you're just going to muddy the waters. They're just going to try and confuse everyone with, uh, well, he said it in a tweet, uh, sorry, in a text message on the 18th, but he didn't say it on the 19th. So that he didn't really say it. And just throw out all kinds of stuff in, in that direction. I think that's what this is suggesting, uh, you know, them, them having said we're going to discuss those four issues. But uh, yeah, legally, I completely agree. I mean, he lied. It's obviously lied. And it only comes down to whether the, the lie was material. It, I mean, this is all about um, the government's burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And if you can throw, if you as a defense counsel can, can throw doubt on any issue, you win. So right now, they're trying to throw doubt on all issues. At, at closing, they may, they may settle on one or two. But during the trial, they're going to toss, they're going to try to keep that doubt ball in the air on every issue they can. Uh, the fact that they came out and affirmatively said he didn't lie uh, surprised me a little bit. Uh, they didn't have to agree that he lied, but to uh, affirmatively state it, uh, that, that takes some, uh, some balls to do that, I'd say. They, uh, because they, if, if, as a trial lawyer, if you tell the jury you're going to prove something or disprove something and then you fall way short, you kind of lose credibility. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know how exactly those, I mean, we only know, we can only see it through the tweets. Like, what exactly did Bosworth say? Did he uh, say those four issues as promises? Did he just merely kind of phrase them as issues? Uh, did he actually make any promises? Um, you know, so we, we're going to have to wait for the transcript. But obviously, you're right that, that you cannot make promises that, that you don't keep that. You just simply can't do that. Um, I suspect he was kind of trying to have a, his cake and eat it. So like no real promises, but throw out a lot of stuff. Um, and, you know, in the end, you might end up in the same situation that you just described, King, where the jury, you know, this this will be a few weeks old by the time they get to the jury room to consider the verdict. And like, didn't he talk about this and this and this? And, you know, it might still come back to bite them. Hey guys, uh, so Technofog just posted an article, as he always does, um, brilliantly summarizing everything, but uh, he pointed out that he has the morning transcript, and he's expecting the afternoon transcript as well. So I just tweeted that out, and I'm sure he'll have a, a tweet here pretty shortly as well. 
Hey, yeah, we should say those, those cost like $200 a pop just for one session or something like that. So uh, subscribe to his uh, uh, thing that he's on, that Substack or whatever it is. Absolutely, guys. Everybody should try to support Techno if you can. Um, yeah, he, he's putting in a lot of money, and I, I know he's putting in a ton of FOIAs too. So um, everybody should try to support him, share out his stuff, um, share it wherever you can. I mean, Facebook, Twitter. And, uh, yeah. Can, can I just ask a question? Right, on sure. The, so I, I think I generally have an idea of what materiality is, but it, it's a bit mercurial. And if King or Hans or any other lawyer could I- explain quickly what materiality is, because I, it, it I, I get it, and then I don't, if that makes sense. Let I'm not a lawyer, and I can even explain it. Do my headphones work? That's all I wanted to see. Yeah, you're good. Hello? Sick. All right, they finally work. Okay. I just wanted to butt in there and see if they actually work. All right, I'm going to go on a walk, and I'll be in here. Awesome. Sick. One of the lawyers can explain. Thanks. Let me give it a shot, um, and everybody else can jump in where I missed something. First, it's an objective standard, which means you don't the, – the issue is not what the FBI actually did with the information and what they would have done, what they say they would have done. The issue is objectively what – would an investigator, a reasonable investigator in their shoes, hearing the lie, would it have made any difference? Would it have mattered had they known the truth instead in terms of what they considered, what they looked at, uh, the scope, direction, what have you, of their decision-making, not just the investigation, not the issue. It goes way further than the issue of whether they would have opened an investigation or not. It goes into issues like how would it have affected the institution, the agency. Uh, So... um, and in, in this particular case, it, it I've, I've always said the uh, uh, most damning evidence of materiality as far as uh, that the Durham could present, but he's apparently not going to, is the referral from the CIA as to the, as to, uh, the potential uh, that Hillary and her campaign had uh, designed this strategy to uh, cock up a, uh, a scheme to blame Trump for colluding with Russia. Uh, if, if they had known, if the FBI had known that uh, uh, the campaign, the client, 
the campaign was behind this. Uh, it could have taken or should have taken an entirely different uh, look at uh, all of the evidence, everything they were looking at, not just the uh, uh, Alpha Bank story. That's that's you know in in broad terms that's what materiality means. So, so I, I mean, sorry, Hans might be able to help me on this, but uh, I think in the English law they call it the man on the Clapham omnibus. It's like the, what a, what a normal person would, just a random bus person passenger would see and whether they would take that as being real or not. Um, sort of. Uh, the, the, the man in the omnibus is sort of the objective standard that uh, King talked about. The materiality is basically, is it relevant? Is it important? You can use any of those words. The thing that makes it easier to prove than just simple relevance which is pretty easy in itself, is that it only has to be theoretically relevant. So, and, you know, Flynn is always the example we can use because they had his transcript and he supposedly lied about the transcript, which he didn't, but that's a different point. So they can't say it changed anything. They already knew. So it was just a theoretical lie. So in this case, the argument is going to be, it already was today. They already, Bosworth already intimated at several uh, points today that they're going to argue, with, you know, they asked, uh, what was his name, uh, Hellman, and later on, the, the, the guy in the afternoon, um, what, what would have happened, you know, if, uh, if you knew? And, well, Hellman said I was, would have done the same thing. The only difference is I would have marked it in the, in the notes that, you know, this information came from Hillary or whatever. Um, so his argument is going to be, well, see, it, everything was exactly the same, whether it was Sussman or anyone else or whether he was there for Clinton or whether he was there... Uh, for, in his own capacity, whatever, it doesn't matter, the results would have been the same. And of course, as King already said, uh, that's not true. There's a couple of things which would have been different. I mean, uh, Hellman talked about one, which is he would have put something different in his notes. Now, that might seem like a small thing, but that in itself already qualifies as materiality because it's potentially relevant, it's theoretically relevant, because whoever gets those notes of, of, or his report of, of this data can then, as King said, say, hey, wait a minute, this is a 5150. By the way, I love that term, um, which, <laughs> to be honest, I didn't know what that meant before today, at least not in FBI parlance. So, oh, this is, this is just some crazy nut job white paper. What? Hillary's people brought it in? And then, of course, that kicks off a Hillary investigation. But if the notes don't say anything about Hillary, there's going to be no Hillary investigation at least theoretically, right? So um, I think just what Hellman said by itself is already materiality. And, and in terms of the way Durham is trying this case, his whole theme is that uh, the campaign uh, manipulated the FBI to get involved in a political fight. Uh, and could they have pulled that off had they said uh, that Hillary was behind uh, Sussman going in the first place? 
or could the, for example, the FBI may have done every investigative step that they actually did, did, but they might have taken additional steps to prevent their institution from getting involved in politics. Simple as that. That that things like that make it matter. It makes it uh, relevant, not only relevant, but uh, highly important that the FBI know the origin of of this data. One other item I, I kind of want to pose to you guys. So, I think it was a week ago we got this piece of information about a meeting in March 2017, uh, about six months after the events that are the subject of this trial. But apparently in this March 2017 meeting, a few different FBI analysts took some notes in which they described Andrew McCabe stating that um, Sussman had a client, an unnamed client, something to that effect. And, um, of course, the Sussman team had this you know, pretty dramatic filing last week that was way too long for, for the subject, basically arguing that it was really important to their case uh, and they wanted to introduce And the judge did grant that. So today in the opening statement, uh, the Sussman attorneys kind of previewed that and they are apparently going to make some arguments around this March 2017 uh, meeting, which was months after the, the lie that Sussman told and, and even a couple months after the FBI had totally debunked and closed this down. If not, you know, it sounds like the FBI debunked this fairly early. So um, from a, a, a case standpoint, do you guys have any thoughts about how that's going to play? I mean, is that, it seems like it's so easy to shoot down to have such a, a meeting months after everything had happened. Uh, it seems like Durham's going to be able to shoot that down pretty easily. But do you guys have any uh ideas or thoughts on the defense introducing that today and, and making that a, a cornerstone of their defense? I, it, it fits in a couple of other pieces of evidence that uh, the defense focused on. The, uh, I'm referring to the FBI emails and other internal documents where somebody in the FBI understood that Sussman had brought the, um, uh, was the source of the data, uh, contrary to what Hellman said. So there were FBI people who knew more than Hellman, that's one. Two, somebody else wrote in an email, I think, uh, referred to uh, DNC being the client. So you've got a internal FBI document that says there was a client. That's the March 17, 2017 notes. You've got an internal email referring to DNC as the client. You've got another internal document saying that Sussman was the source, uh, Attorney Sussman was the source, which contradicts what uh, the second witness on the stand today said. He, you know, he couldn't find out who the source was. So you, it, they're laying doubt as to 
uh, what the FBI knew and how they knew it. Sorry to just jump in here, but I, I think it was Hellman himself that actually referred to DNC as the client in the uh, internal chat, internal app. Oh, was, yep. was it? Yeah. Uh, uh, and I think he, he answered or responded by saying something like, well, if it is, a, I was completely unaware of it. And there was also, they asked him if Durham had suggested to him that he meant to say DNS instead of DNC. And he said, no, that's probably not likely. So there's, there, that did bring him, uh, up a few questions, I think, in court today, but I don't know. We ha we don't have the transcript yet, so. But the point is, they're they're gonna the defense is gonna try to throw uh, bits and pieces like that up into the air to try to create doubt in the jury's mind as to what the FBI was told and when they were told it. Undead? Yeah, hey, Will. How's it going? Good. Uh, did Did you follow all those tweets that those two guys were going back and forth? You know, you, you know, accused one guy of being in cahoots and there's... <laughs> did you follow that? I, I haven't gone back and reread it. I, I think the point that I was making in that, that thread, so, um, you know, you look at the CIA... And they debunked this really, really fast, apparently, and said it was user-created. And then we heard today testimony from the FBI, and apparently these FBI agents took one look at this and within a day totally debunked this. And they said, no, like this doesn't support the narrative that was associated with it. Um, you know, there's a lot of issues here, and we have a lot of questions. Like, it doesn't make sense at all. And then you pair that with these articles that have been out there for six years now. Um, you know, the first one in Slate, which was October 2016, and then you have the New York article a couple years later, but you have all these, like, really world-renowned computer forensic scientists or whatever, whatever you want to call them, but you have, like, Rodney Joffe, you have Manos, you have David Dagan, you have Elgin Camp, um, you have April Lorenzen, of course, and then you have, like, Dan Gilmore, um, uh, Few other uh, Matt Blaze, you have Steve Belvin. Yeah, that was and, the guy, Matt Blaze. Yeah, and you have a few others as well. And it's like you guys are supposed to be at the top of your fields, and you put your name uh, against this analysis. And and some of these individuals actually work for the Jones investigation to like further substantiate these supposed claims. Um, so if, with all this time and and all this supposed analysis and their expertise. They couldn't match what, what an FBI agent did in, like, six hours. And, like, that's ridiculous. So I, I have a lot of concerns with them. I, I don't know that, you know, I'm not saying that they're all conspirators or anything, but they should never work in any type of cyber position again. I mean, they should never have a federal contract. They should never have access to data, like, just on general principle. I don't know that they're conspirators, but they're not good at their jobs. And, no. and on that basis alone, I mean, they should never work uh, in the cyber field again. Can, can I ask Hans real quick a question or anyone? Um, now, I'm thinking that, you know, they're they're using the, the, you know, the media. And what's driving this, in my, you know, my opinion, is that the FBI is sending out these feelers to all these people, informants, um, you know, journalists, whatever. Just dig up something 
where somebody has committed an inkling of a crime so that we can go get a Fisk warrant because that's what they were always looking for was just some sort of criminal activity so that they could, you know, like what they finally got with Carter page with the dossier, you know, with the, 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 the Gazprom or, or whatever, you know, where he was, you know, involved in a stake for, you know, a couple of billion dollars, which is completely ridiculous, but there it is. There's the crime. Is that what they were doing? It, Yeah, I, I, that's my understanding. And and as it relates to Rodney Joffe, who we found out was a confidential human source, yeah. you have to ask the question: like, what kind of reports was this guy filing with the FBI? Like, what what kind of complaints or investigations were started based on information that Joffe had? I mean, he has all this access, this incredible access to I you know I assume classified information, obviously, but he also has these private you know partnerships and and everything like Ops Trust, which is like a super vetted community of independent researchers and, or, you know, IT professionals from everywhere. I mean, you name a major company, they probably have somebody on this forum, um, which is like a, you know, place that they share data, like independently without regard to like customer contracts or whatever, they unilaterally make decisions to share data and, and about attacks and stuff that they face. So, all of a sudden, you probably have Rodney Joffe, you know, on this forum, and then he can feed that information right to the FBI, which is really concerning. Um, and who knows yeah. if he's like that, like NCSDA, like his his handler um, Grasso was like one of the unit chiefs of that NCSDA thing, where he ran yeah. a bunch of those those FBI agents. Which that's like the basically how the private sector brings a bunch of uh this information to i guess the fbi through that association then ncfda that's where like we first saw that dude's name was in your when in your emails because he was like um thomas at ncfta or whatever so that's like where i first saw that name and i'm like "Uh, i wonder like i wonder how and like i saw like even back then that he was working with mog which is basically probably a Joffe company too, but Lorenzen and Dagon are all there. So, I mean, all those guys that work in that, like either ops trust or that NCFDA thing are probably basically CHSs and they're filtering it through that Grasso dude. Yeah. And, and they're yeah. double dipping with the CIA, right? Cause, uh, yep. you know, cause Kleinsmith, you know, had to ask the CIA if what, it was page, uh, was a, you know, was an informant. And they're not talking to each other for plausible deniability, I'm sure. Well, I don't know if they're, if they, if Joffe or any of them had a relationship with the CIA. It seems like it's probably more domestic, but it could be. I yeah, Got and now, now Grasso's on, still on the board of directors of that organization. So, um, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. All right, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, sure. Uh, you guys have anything else? I might take a couple questions here. I, I don't plan on having a super long chat because um, with tomorrow's lineup, we have Mark Elias, we have Laura Sego, and those two alone, um, I'm sure, are going to spawn a lot of conversations for us tomorrow. So I plan on hosting a chat tomorrow night uh, so we don't have to go all night. But I, you know, if anybody has a question or comment, uh, I'll open it up for a few minutes here, and then we can probably end it. Um, I've got, I've got one. Yeah. Uh, the, 
the last witness uh, described the data that Jaffe collected about Trump associates, including some um, Alpha Bank uh, data. But I, did, in reading the tweets from the court watchers, watchers, I did not take away that that was the DNS data that they were talking about. But it wasn't clear. Could, can somebody explain that? I think I missed that part. Well, I mean, like we looked through like the the Senate, um, or I guess some of the data that Lorenzen and, or I guess it was probably Degon passing on to Dan Jones, but that could be the new star data because they're looking at that EOP stuff because it could be the EOP stuff, which would be very interesting if Joppy was given that, like the Yoda phone crap to um, Grasso instead and and going there first. Because, like, Walk of Fire, like, made this post, like, uh, he retweeted something earlier about, like, early September. They're talking about this phone. Like, um, Paige and, and Strzok are talking about this phone. And it's related to Shadow Brokers, or at least we think it is, like, SB. And um, it'd be interesting if Joffe was, wasn't giving the exact same stuff to Grasso as Sussman was to um, uh, Baker. But... Um, I think that's right because it's the new star data, which is different, definitely different than what April had. Yeah. Th- so th- new, new, was- new star would have had the EOP. They would have had the, um, like you can look at their data. They would have had, um, I think some of the spectrum stuff, but I don't think they had like the, uh, the, uh, Trump's, uh, I can't remember now. But yeah, I think you're right, King. It's different it, stuff. It, it's not, and it the time frame covered is also different. Uh, I think the data this witness was describing goes back to June, sometime in June. But the uh, tea leaves data uh, that everybody's been passing around started in May. Yeah, that's right, because that's when in June is like basically when they started uh, passing around the um, uh, sort of uh, uh, the the list. Yeah, Yeah. but what do they call it? The proof of concept stuff. Yes. When they had the EOP and whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, the first data set, I think, goes from May 4th to July 29th. And I think then there's kind of a cutoff. And that's like the first major data set that's out there. And. I think like Elgene Camp has posted that data set, um, so I, I I would agree with that. I, I think it's a data. It's a, it comes from a different data source. Uh, that first batch does, and then the second batch maybe comes from another another source. But what this uh, person on the stand was talking about didn't sound like either one to me. Is DNS data bro? Is it or because I'm 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 never sure when it comes to the the contract that they have a VEOP, the White House. Yeah, yeah, that's DNS data for sure. But so there's DNS there, but I'm I'm always a little bit suspicious that there isn't like like cell phone data as well. It's it's niggled me for a long time, but there's but they have 
some better contract than than just monitoring the DNS. Um, well, I mean, I I know we got quite technical into this a couple of months ago, but it's it's always it's like something I've just like parked on the side because there might be a different uh, data stream. Yeah, we we haven't seen much about the data. Um, you know the the Yoda phone data. We don't know what contract that was on. We don't know the data source for that. And there's really no set of allegations connected to that yet. I mean, it was just you know somebody in the general vicinity of Trump. They assume is in the general vicinity of the White House or um, like some campaign event in Michigan. I think they said so. Um, it, it's pretty ridiculous, but. Um, yeah, I don't think we have any, any type of indications about where that data actually came from. Well, I think it's for sure DNS data. Um, and I think like they've alluded to is like that, that phone connecting to the Wi-Fi or something, the public Wi-Fi or whatever, but it's certainly DNS data from what I've seen because they have like the lookups, um, uh, uh, Tina Doug for that Trump email domain or whatever. That's a good point. Yeah, that does make sense. I'm still waiting to learn more about this former CHS, and I I got really excited when we heard Joffe was closed out as CHS because that made me think of the former CHS that McCabe closed out in September 2016, but uh, it appears that Joffe wasn't closed out until 2021, probably as Durham was kind of looking into him and um, then they, then they fired him for cause uh, as it relates to how he handled alpha bank information. So um, don't know exactly, you know, what violation there was when, when Joffe gave it to Sussman instead of his handler, but um, they did fire Joffe as a confidential human source last year. So um, we're still waiting to hear more about this former CHS that first, you know, gave some data to the FBI apparently in late July, and that data made it to Peter Strzok in early August, we know, uh, and that contained a list of Trump associates with, you know, their email addresses and, um, you know, things of that nature. But uh, hopefully we're going to learn more about that, and maybe that'll be when Horowitz gets on the stand. But um, Well, I'm just going to go out there and say it's probably McIntyre and not ours, but we're going to go with that. (laughs) But like, uh, uh, like you were saying, like that. Uh, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Well, I mean, like the former CHS, there isn't like email addresses. I don't think it's just like a list of names or whatever um, that he was bringing in. But um, oh crap, I had a point about Joffe being the CHS. Ah. Uh, but anyways yeah i'm going out on a limb and saying it was probably mcintyre because like that whole thing like if you read those those footnotes it's like a like a a colleague of mine like who else is a colleague of simpson besides somebody that was probably a journalist or whatever because it wouldn't be joffy because that's not really a colleague and now we know it's not joffy which is awesome like this is what's like great about this trial which i didn't think we're going to learn this much but like he was open that entire time and but like I guess oh what I was gonna go into is like if he if he was open as a CHS and he was directing his lawyer to like not name him and he was also going to his his handler like isn't that obstruction of justice or or something like I feel like that's like a crime right there 
I don't know if King can talk about that, but that seems like you're obstructing something and, and his covert and his overt acts just keep on going. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. King, if you want to jump in for sure, I, uh, I can't answer that. I, I don't, <laughs> we, we have to know a lot more to say obstruction of justice. I, I think. Well, okay. So like, okay. So somebody was going like, all right, like they've already basically said that that Jaffe didn't want to be named or didn't it didn't want it he didn't want to have it coming back to him. But he was already going to like his handler. I guess we don't know at what point he was. But like if he's sending like it basically looks like the same thing where they're doing information laundering with Steele when he's going to the media. They're bringing it back to the FBI when he's going to the FBI directly. Like it looks very similar similar to that. But it's like more obvious that he's trying to commit a crime because he's sending his lawyer to launder this information like it's on purpose like it's pretty obvious but I, yeah I, I we probably need more information but it looks pretty criminal right there it it makes it kind of uh silly that the fbi fired him as a ca chs you know last year because it, it's it's like that that firing is just sort of uh well we had to do it because if we didn't it would be more obvious to everyone that everybody knew who everybody was you know and i, I sort of see that as a continuation of this whole charade kind yeah. of deal and it's like uh, why didn't baker just tell sussman um well i guess it was sussman and not jaffe but i mean it, it's like no, you have a handler, you should do this. Instead, what Baker did was he accepted this info, tried to keep it out of the uh, chain of custody, you know, and passed it directly to where it needed to go. So it's it's kind of like Baker was enabling all of this. It didn't sound like he was doing it by the book. I agree with that. I don't think Baker has clean hands in this. No way. And it's almost- yeah, I mean, we kind of <laughs> talked about that earlier, right? Because um, just the way that kind of went down with Hellman, not you know asking the question about the source of the data, and then Baker was saying, "Well, no, it's a it's a sensitive source," and he didn't want to tell Hellman about it. I thought that was that's pretty damning for Baker. I mean, that that's not a good look. Um, it's almost like that that text message that uh, that Tussman sent on the 18th. It's almost like it was to get it documented and in writing that Sussman wasn't representing a client. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to learn that, that Baker told him to send that text message. I, I wouldn't be surprised that Baker um, forged or, you know, um, edited something uh, to throw Sussman under the bus when all this came out. Well, here's the other thing. Like, I don't know if you guys like talked about this earlier, but like the whole DNC, um, like Sussman client thing, like Hawkins was receiving those CrowdStrike reports. Like I'm, I'm, I'm assuming Hellman and those guys, like they're all in the Washington field office. I'm assuming they were getting the CrowdStrike reports too. So they were probably like confused, but like, it's interesting that like, it seems like they knew that Sussman was the client and DNC was the, I mean, Sussman was like the source and the DNC was, you know, the client is the report. Cause they're, they're probably looking at the CrowdStrike reports and this other, alpha report and it's probably like a well it doesn't seem like hellman like it's that's so weird like that that uh that he didn't remember that both of them were probably from the same thing but uh i feel like it would have been easy to to maybe 
uh, confuse the two, maybe not. Because I think, like, Sussman brought those reports, like, August 31st or something from CrowdStrike. Because you had the DNC report, and then you had the DCCC report, and then there was another report we don't even know about. Can we just, before we mention Chicago as well, so it's like the Washington field office, like DC, CrowdStrike, and then Chicago, which is just sort of sat there for some reason, which we don't realize why. Well, I think I know where you're going. I'm, I'm not really sure why that, that investigation was shipped off to Chicago, but there must be some explanation for that. Is it, is it similar in the FBI that uh, the way that uh, um, who handles a case is determined is by who receives the first tip? Is it possible that, uh, well, you know, it's just speculation that it was Elgin Camp, but is, isn't it possible that somebody from Indiana or something like that walked into the Chicago field office, you know, being adjacent and provided them with some sort of tip that gave them the um, the priority for managing the case or something like that. Hey, everybody. Um, I think the speculation originally was that because Papadopoulos would have been through Chicago, that if they started the file there, they started the case there, that that it just stuck with them. I mean, I, I don't know if that's true, but that, I think that was bandied about a little bit. Yeah, but that case would have been out of HQ because they didn't start that investigation until, I guess, early August. You're saying that, I don't know. I don't know why they would have that investigation uh, punted over to the Papadopoulos team, but maybe. I don't know. I know Heidi was working on it, I think, because obviously he's like uh, he's like a witness in this. I think he was on on one of the on the supposed Gene Camp interview that Curtis Heidi was one of the agents. I I disagree. I think uh, what we know about Crossfire Hurricane it was very tightly and closely held before the at least before the election and operated out of headquarters in D.C. Uh, they didn't ship. They didn't um, subcontract it out to other field offices, I don't think. If they did, I hadn't heard it. That's correct. But um, Heidi was out of Chicago and his uh, supervisor, who I forget it was. But um, I think Heidi was like one of the interviewing agents of the supposed Gene Camp thing. So I don't know. I don't know why those are interconnected. I don't know why it's Chicago, I guess. I don't know if King has like a but, guess at that. But, but we also have the, like this two different parts of FBI. There's like the criminal. I think uh, I think cut out there, Willie. Um, really, I don't know if you wanted to finish your thought. I think you cut out. It, 
if there was something like a wiretap on Papadopoulos, uh, I don't, could that shift things, operations to Chicago or something like that? I, I wouldn't connect it to Papadopoulos at all. I mean, they didn't open up on Papadopoulos until August 10th, and that was well on, under the umbrella of Crossfire Hurricane. So um, I don't think it, it has to do with Papadopoulos. I, I, I don't know. I mean, we you know, really don't have any basis uh, to speculate on why it would be Chicago. Um, but it, I wouldn't connect it to pa- Papadopoulos, though. I did see that, like, um, Grasso was, like, sort of in Chicago at some point, and they have this, like, cyber unit, something or another, that's based out of Chicago field office. Um, could be related to whatever cyber unit they have there. Because, like, even in some of those page and struck emails, they talk about CG and, and SF, which are, like, I guess big cyber places. So it could just because it's cyber. That makes the most sense, I think. Because yeah, they, they, they did have the San Francisco cyber side also. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to think. That's what I was thinking about. I mean, if they were going to kind of farm it out to another office, I would have thought it would be San Francisco. But I guess that makes sense with Chicago, maybe too. Um, let's see here. Hey, Rough Cut. What's up, man? Yeah, hey, guys. I appreciate you guys putting these together and all the research and all the work you all have done. You really take care of a lot of us, like, just, just un, unwinding this whole thing for us. Uh, question, just a couple comments, right? There's been a lot of discussion over the last, say, I don't know, week or so, week and a half around, like, and, and even today about, like, discussion of whether the FBI is a victim as an institution. And because they've been framed that way, maybe something can't occur there. But is it possible that, guys like Hellman and others just doing their job day to day. And then there's these other sharks in the water that we all know about, you know, Baker struck onward that once they get through this piece of like the institution is, is one thing, but then you got this other group inside the institution that truly were taking advantage and putting, you know, doing all these shenanigans, so to speak that. So again, once they, once they pierce so-called the, the, uh, the private folks, can that be used then to draw into some of these other folks in the FBI that were tainting the, the institution that they've kind of painted today as, you know, something not to be taken advantage of? And I'll just mute and just listen. Thanks. I kind of wonder if this whole Sussman prosecution on a single uh, 1001 charge is to get Sussman to rat on the FBI. And so far, <laughs> so far, Durham can't get either side to rat on the other side sort of so they're all sort of playing along with this story you know and, and Sussman's counting on a jury not finding him guilty yeah rough cut I think that's a good good question I, I think you framed it up the, the right way I mean you can look at the FBI as a victim as an institution in that they were given fraudulent data they were given you know uh, made up fabricated dossier stories and yeah they have to they have to put in their, their paces as an institution. And in that regard, yes, they are a victim. And uh, for Durham to prosecute these private actors, he has to frame it that way. I mean, um, when you're going to prosecute a criminal case, there has to be a victim. And in this case, the victim is the United States. And, you know, that institution is the FBI, uh, most, you know, uh, in closest proximity to the, to the actual crimes. 
But yeah, I think it's still an open question of whether Durham might pursue some private actors. Um, I think generally speaking, this corner is moving away from that and, and towards the thought that maybe he won't do anything there. But, you know, you still look at like John Ratcliffe, who has seen a lot more documents. Um, he's obviously seen the most documents out of anybody. And he continues to say uh, very firmly that he would expect more indictments of those government officials. So you have to put some faith in that. You know, I've never found him to embellish what he's been saying. So, you know, as somebody that's seen more documents, I mean, you have to put some, some confidence in that. Um, there are some challenges for bringing a prosecution there because one, you know, you have this fabricated evidence that's coming to them. And then two, you have to, you know, you have to prove that it's not just an overzealous agent running down this evidence. And I think shipwreck does a, a fantastic job of reminding us. I mean, there's a difference of being like overzealous and, you know, maybe you have a political bias, but you have like fraudulent data. Like, uh, are you just putting through its paces and doing your, your job or is there malicious intent and proving malicious intent and criminal intent on the part of FBI agents after five, six years from now, when they've had time to destroy evidence, that's going to be really, really hard. And, and it might rely on some witnesses. But, you know, I, I'm not ready to, to kind of like bury that. I, I'm not going to say that nobody in the FBI is going to be indicted, especially with this fourth FISA warrant, which has been ruled invalid. Uh, they had a mountain of evidence by that point that was all exculpatory, and they included none of it in that final FISA warrant. Uh, they had, you know, interviewed Danchenko at least three times, I believe, maybe four times. Uh, they had intercepts from 702 coverage on uh, Galkina, uh, which gave them some evidence around Chuck Dolan as well. And they had also interviewed Ivan Vronsov, which was a subsource for Igor Danchenko. And Danchenko had already debunked everything, but they went one layer further and they talked to Vronsov. Uh, by no later than June 2017, they pulled him out of the, the Spazzo house. And he, you know, we don't know exactly what he said, but uh, he's pretty firmly de denied that he was a so source for anything. So you have to assume that that was another opportunity for them to shut everything down. So, um, you know, they had all these recorded conversations, everything, you know, three FISA warrants, they had produced nothing. Uh, so, yeah, this fourth FISA warrant, I would be really disappointed if Durham doesn't bring a couple indictments around that. So that was kind of a long-winded response to that. Um, but King or Fool, if you want to yeah. jump in, go ahead. I would just add that uh, even after the fourth FISA warrant application, June 28th, 2017, the FBI stuck to its lies when it responded to the Senate Intel Committee uh, investigation. I think they've responded formally with a letter in the first part of 2018 where they reaffirmed the lie that Danchenko um, basically uh, uh, backed up everything in the Steele dossier, at least that part that's attributed to Danchenko, uh, which was a lie. And they did the same thing with the 
FISA court itself later in 2018. I forget the date. But um, the five-year statute uh, could be viewed as running from those dates, the cover-up. I would, I would add to that. If I remember right, the language that the FBI used was something along the lines of we found uh, Danchenko to be honest and forthcoming. So it, it doesn't necessarily say that he backed up the information that was in the dossier and the FISA app. For all we know, he could have been telling them that it's all bullcrap, <laughs> you know, but because he was honest with them, they were able to represent that he was honest, even though they were doing it dishonestly. Well, he, he, he said that uh, the dossier had uh, a whole lot of information that didn't, that supposedly came from him, but that he never told Steele. That's one. Two, he said that a lot of what he did tell Steele was based on bar talk and rumors, and he told Steele that, and that's, that qualification is not there in the dossier. So he he gave the FBI every reason to debunk the dossier, yet they put it in two more files of renewals and they confirmed the uh, reliability of his reporting and Steele's reporting, both to the Senate and to the FISA court in 2018. That's misleading. Anybody got anything else? All right, guys. Uh, yeah, no, no. I uh, just I posted him the what do you call it the the nest or whatever. Um, a link to Technofog's uh, Substack. Maybe like subscribe there because he's going to be getting. The transcripts so that we can review um, daily because there's no cameras in federal court. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, no. So in the nest, I think it's called, there's a link to Technofog Substack and and just send them dollar if you can. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, just to chime in on that, I'm from what I understand, these transcripts. There's going to be a morning transcript and there's an afternoon transcript, and each one is two hundred dollars. So Technofog is is bearing some of those costs. Um, so whatever we can do to help Technofog, uh, subscribe to Substack, donate if you can, share that out. Um, it's good information. Everybody knows. I mean, he's a fantastic writer, great researcher. He's always the first one to get all these documents and and write everything up. So um, anything that we can do to help out Technofog. We should certainly try to try to do that. Um, I think I'm going to go go ahead and end it here. Um, as I said, I'm going to go ahead and expect to do a chat tomorrow night. I mean, we have Mark Elias and we have Laura Sego, and uh, uh, I think Debbie Fine might be really interesting to to hear tomorrow too. So um, I know there's going to be even a few more witnesses. Who knows what what might come up. Um, but yeah, you know, probably tomorrow at nine o'clock Eastern time, we'll plan on doing another chat. We maybe we'll try to do this every night of the trial. I don't know. Um, 
I am going to go to Washington, D.C. this weekend. I'm going to spend a few days sitting in the trial. I'm not going to do a live tweet, especially with, you know, we have three or four people that are live tweeting it really well. So um, I'll just sit in and take a look at the jurors and, and see what's going on uh, as best as I can. And then, uh, yeah, I'll probably plan on hosting chats next week too. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and edit here. Thank everybody coming out tonight thank you to our speakers and everybody have a good night see you everybody night, night. <laughs>